For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I am your host, Bob Barrow. I want to thank you guys for joining me for episode six of the Steal My Name podcast. I think I'm going to have to get, like my Simpsons swear jar, another swear jar for just how many times I say the words, the Steal My Name podcast during the Steal My Name podcast. <laughs> I've also noticed I have a few other repeat words, I guess. I've, I found I uh, during the editing of this, because the end product that you hear uh, has, has been gone over with a fine-tooth comb. I've combed the desert, as it were, for words such as so, I know I say a lot, and you know. Also, that uh, sound people make when they kind of wet their mouths up for speaking. I try and get as many of those out so you don't have to hear that in your headphones wherever you are. Because I know when I do it, it's uh, just listening to myself make that sound is grating as shit. It's like, you know, when you make a horrible sound that's only annoying for you, like like running your teeth down a popsicle, which just makes me sick even talking about or squeaking on something plastic. Yeah, it, it makes me sick, too, guys. So I try and catch it. Uh, I try and catch it whenever I can. But I guess I've I've noticed that doing this on my own because I don't have someone to bounce off of or somebody that can, you know, give them that kind of panicked look of I'm at the end of my thought. Now is the time for you to have thought words. You end up saying things like, so you know, you know how this is, you know how that is. Um, you know, maybe I'll try and, uh, or I guess I should pull out the old uh, thesaurus or uh, or dictionary or something, some book with words in it and start learning some better transitions so I'm not repeating myself so often. So I don't recommend it as a drinking game. You know, the steal my name drinking game. So, no, anyway. Enough of that nonsense. So as I said, episode six, February is here and we know it's February because we dragged a rat out of its hole and watched to see if the sun god was angry with us or not so we can make an arbitrary prediction about climate. And as of, I don't know, six o'clock today or so, America completely shit its democracy down its legs. So that's how we know it's February. It's a politically charged world that we live in nowadays, obviously, so you don't need me to tell you that. Oh, look, another movie podcast where someone has a political opinion. Wow, how original. I know, thank you, you can send all the fan mail you want, I really do appreciate it. I know I'm pretty cutting edge and ahead of my time, but it's something that I I actually didn't plan this. When I was doing my, my episode planning, my outline for what I wanted to do, I didn't give any thought to the impeachment stuff in the States and what would be going on. This movie just came up naturally as one I haven't talked about before and one that's been on my to-do list to talk about for some time. But with political stuff, I, I always get a little a little hesitant about it. With The Frame Apart, we, I guess you could say we were a political show. We had very firm stances, obviously, on on what we talked about and the content we addressed we always tried to do it, or at least I tried to do it in a very easy way, try to slip it in there just through natural discussion without jamming it down your throat. There was the the flat-out, you know, in-your-face political episode with American History X versus Threads. And it, it's a shame that since that time, the, the world has actually gotten a lot daffier than uh than we're used to but this just kind of rolled around and i guess it's 
I guess it's as good a time in any as any to talk about Red State. Yes, Red State, the one from that Kevin Smith. So Red State is a strange movie. Uh, it's an excellent film, which is why I'm talking about it today. But it's strange that it comes from a filmmaker like Kevin Smith. It's not. It's definitely an, the biggest anomaly in his filmography. Even, you know, weirdo escapades, something like Tusk, which is 65% of an excellent film. It's still so wacky and over the top that it kind of fits into his strange aesthetic, or at least the second part of his career that he's gone into. I haven't seen Yoga Hosers, so I can't comment on that one, and that's probably for the best, but I am a a long-time Kevin Smith fan. I've been a fan of his since around the time Dogma came out. It's the first movie of his that I recall seeing. Mallrats, Clerk 2, Clerks 2, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, Take a Pick. And actually, if you come, if you still uh, still listening to me ramble on and say words like so and you know, just so you know, but um uh the month of April is gonna be all Kevin Smith. So whole theme month. But what we're talking about right now is his 2011 film Red State. I don't, there are filmmakers out there that have diverse filmographies, kind of just, they're workaday filmmakers, they do whatever they want, they make action movies, westerns, comedies, whatever. It's more of an older school approach, unless you're just kind of a a job director, you're not a a writer-director or tour kind of a thing. And Kevin Smith is definitely that. He is a writer-director. He has his aesthetic. He has, obviously, the View of Universe movies. And even the things he's done outside of that, things like Zack and Mary make a porno, Jersey Girl, it's... And this, and then Tusk and Yoga Hosers, they're still very much him. They start with him, and they end with him. Other than Cop Out, which he... That's a completely... That's a, that's a story for another time. But... With a filmmaker like that, you generally don't see them making radical changes, not just in the kind of film they make, but how they make it. You know, a, I guess a modern filmmaker we could approach like this, someone like Robert Rodriguez, a very varied filmography, but it still it sits in the camp of kind of his adult action horror stuff that he does or his his kids' pictures. But even the kids' stuff, it still shares his aesthetic. You know it's a Robert Rodriguez film, whether it's from familiar faces or just kind of his general let's-go-for-it kind of tone, that weird kind of off-center comic book fun that he has with his stuff. It's the same in Spy Kids as it is in something like Desperado, just the subject matter's different. But Red State may be one of the hardest, weird, unexpected 180s that a filmmaker has ever made. I guess the only, another parallel I could draw, I won't say the only parallel, but one I could draw is something like when Wes Craven shocked everybody and did Music of the Heart with Meryl Streep. Now, for people that know Wes Craven, you, we knew that he had wanted, long wanted, to do something outside of horror. And that was his chance. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's a it's a very lovely film. But beyond that, unless it's a director that specializes in genre bouncing and makes other people's scripts and just kind of does what they want, you don't see an about face like this. And this is an about face for someone like Kevin Smith. 
and he's never repeated it up to this point. He he hasn't come back to a subject matter. Uh, I guess you could say Tusk is is a violent, grim film, but it's just so bananas. Whereas this is completely at at odds with everything else in his filmography, the view askew stuff and the other films. So let's, I'm going to try and give a little bit of background on how he got into this and the inspirations that he drew from it. So let's, let's get our feet wet and dive right in. So the roots of this film came about from Kevin Smith watching a documentary that a friend of his had made called small town gay bar. And in that film, the filmmaker had actually managed to get an interview with Fred Phelps, who is, as I'm sure some of you know, uh, was the head of the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, Please forgive my language here, but it's just the language these people use. Those are the God-hates-fags people, the dickheads that protest funerals of servicemen of of gay teens that have killed themselves or died in some way they're just the the most hideous despicable group of people so smith had seen this film and was fascinated by the character of fred phelps and he ended up getting a hold of the b-roll that had been shot of this interview and sequestered himself away in his house to hide from his wife while he watched this interview and was enamored with a character like this, somebody who is so dedicated and insane and out of their mind, but so incredibly committed to this evil agenda of theirs. Now, I have I've watched some interviews with with Fred Phelps, and it's it's frightening and it's incredible to watch this shit come out of somebody's mouth. Now, we we've all heard people talking like this. There's uh, Terry Terry Jones is that his name whoever that idiot is that had the talk show he's been sued by everybody because he was the one claiming that Sandy Hook was a setup Infowars that fucking idiot and so we've especially in this online world we live in hearing people you don't have to go far to hear this kind of unmitigated hate speech coming out of people's mouths the NRA TV fuck just turn on turn on Fox News on any given day and you'll probably hear somebody say something that makes you sick to your stomach. So after watching Fred Phelps, he decided that he wanted to make a movie about this kind of person dealing with this kind of fundamentalism, this Christian fundamentalism. So he sat down and began to write Red State. And one of the interesting goals he set for himself, and it shows in the film, is that he always wanted to stay ahead of the audience. And that's a that's a goal that any writer has. It's a it's a goal that I've had when I've written my I've written my screenplays or when I'm working on a novel. Because if if you can obviously tell where something's going, then there's a good chance that the audience is going to be able to tell where you're going. So obviously that was a a goal of his, but another goal was anytime he thought he knew where it was going to go, he didn't go back and kind of massage things and try and be a little more subtle about it. He would take a completely left turn. So if he was working on a scene and the obvious conclusion was, you know, A, he would immediately jump to D. So the film started taking these dramatic left and rights. So you could never get ahead of it. It's it's an impossible film to predict 
where it's going to go. And that's extremely refreshing. But it's not in a kind of a cheap twist way where it's you're getting these completely left field changes everything works in context of the story so that's that's how he he said about it and took it to when he was still in that unfortunate relationship with the Weinsteins but this is 2011 so this is before it all really came out he took it to them and they said no they passed on it, balked at giving him the money for it. So he went out and kind of did it indie style. They managed to wrangle up the budget they wanted and shot it themselves. So this, because it revolves around a, this issue of fundamentalism and this issues of churches gone insane, really people using religion as this control. It's, it's a hard film to process. It's a hard film to sit through. It's not a pleasant watch in any way because you're dealing with such an extreme character in in Phelps so obviously it's translated here and the preacher Aben Cooper is the substitute for Fred Phelps here played incredibly by Michael Parks he oozes this sinister sinister evil vibe but just like listening to Phelps, it's so focused and so calm that it's not surprising that people who are lost or scared or marginalized would would fall for for somebody like this because you know that's how these people do it. Whether you're Pick your poison when it comes to people who are radicalizing, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam, whether it's gun love, whether it's whatever people who have who have taken, you know, what were once noble for, you know, or at least had parts of nobility to them, whether it's the good parts of Christianity or Islam or the Second Amendment, whatever, and have twisted it for their own sick means. And really what what Cooper in the film and what Phelps come down is this vitriolic hate they have of homosexuals and with any kind of attack theology like this, cause that's all this is. It's just attack theology. You, they always have to identify the other, you know, with, with Hitler, he attacked Jews with, you know, with Trump in the States right now, it's attacking immigrants. You always have to find and demonize the other. And with Christian fundamentalism, especially, it's not surprising that they go after gay people. It, it, it really is. It's disgusting, but it's not surprising. If now, forgive me as I get, you know, a little political here for a moment and just make a hard line, because I guess I have to draw a line and state my case here. It's not surprising they'd go after them because the idea of any doctrine of religion generally, you know, the the ugly sides of Christianity, it comes down to an issue of control. It's about controlling people. You're controlling their fears. You're controlling their hopes, their joys, their wishes. That's all it is. And they outline this very strict scripture huh, of how to go about that control and if you have people that live a lifestyle that isn't congruent 
with that control, you have to attack it because that means those people cannot be controlled. So they have no idea how to process it. It's the only thing they know is fear and control because they are so terrified of not having control over everybody. And that's what this film centers around is these insane extreme lengths that these characters will go to gain control. Now, I have absolutely no idea if anyone in the Westboro Baptist Church has killed anyone in real life. I, I hope not. But if, you know, a news report broke that, you know, a body pit was found on the property they owned, I don't think anyone would really be shocked. But you have, you know, how many of these mass shootings in the States are perpetrated by, you know, good old white Christians and... You know, whether they're shooting up concerts or blowing up abortion clinics, that's what this is. You know, it's religious terrorism, you know, white Christian religious terrorism. And that's what this film is about. And I guess full disclosure here, something that I, I get accused of of lying about, uh, oddly enough, more often than not when I bring this up, is I was actually a Sunday school teacher. I was raised in the United Church, so you don't get much more mellow than that. I, I taught Sunday school there for a number of years. I was part of their youth group. I wrote and directed their Christmas pageant bef the year before I went away to film school. I'd been in their pageants all my life. It was it was a, a great experience for me. Even even when I had a when I was teaching Sunday school, I we were never a big religious family. In, in any by any stretch of the imagination, my dad is a is a lapsed Catholic. My mom was raised Protestant, so I guess United is Protestant. So her family went to a Presbyterian church, St. Stephen's, I believe, and then Northminster and Peterborough opened, and they went there for years until my grandparents uh, passed away. So we were we went almost every Sunday as kids. And it was, it was mostly just to be with my grandparents, but my parents were married at Northminster. My sister and I were baptized there. We were just part of the community. And there was some ugly business. There was a set of, of ministers that came in that were just kind of there to swindle the church out of money. But there were also some incredible uh, ministers that were there. Reverend Bagby, who was there during my time, Reverend Michael Bagby, one of the best influences I've ever had uh, as, as as a mentor and a and a a figure to look up to. He was so kind and welcoming. All the best sides of of any religion, not just Christianity, the kind of person you want to see up in the pulpit, where the message was nothing but love, hope, and acceptance. And that's that's easy. I guess you could say it's easy in the United Church because there's no hell. There is very little Old Testament stuff. It's just, it's all the really nice parts of it. And then a bunch of old people singing songs that don't quite rhyme. But I remember when I was a Sunday school teacher, I started to have in high school a bit of a crisis of faith. Because as I said, we were never super religious people, but I kind of accepted this stuff as not to, you know... God is in heaven and he made the world and we never, I never really believed that, but I took this whole thing very seriously and I'll never forget it. It was, I think a Christmas Eve service in like grade 12 or something. 
And I convinced me and my mom had convinced my dad and my sister to come with us. And Jack wasn't into it. She had had her own rigmaroles with church and friends churches as, as a young person. So she didn't care for it. And dad, his famous line was, if God wants to, if I want to talk to God, I can do it while I'm in bed on Sunday. And I remember sitting in church during the service and the two of them are, are behind me, or me and my mom kind of snickering and laughing. And I got really mad. I got angry that they weren't taking this seriously, that they weren't giving the gravitas that this situation supposedly deserved. And I, and I chewed them out. I got really mad. And then I spent the next few months thinking, I'm like, why am I so mad about this? And I realized that it wasn't so much that, you know, you're, you're kind of snickering and being a little disrespectful, but it was just to themselves. No one else could hear them. But I was caught up in the in this desperate need to take it all super serious and kind of caught up in the in the motions of it. Not so much what was happening, but this kind of misplaced respect for why it was happening. I don't know if any of this makes sense. So that led to the following spring, we were doing communion that day, uh, which in the United Church is great because you get a big chunk of actual really fun bread and grape juice. So it's always awesome. And I had to take the kids upstairs to, to do communion, my class. And the whole time I'm like, this isn't right. This isn't right. I can't, I can't in good conscience take part in this if I don't believe it. It felt wrong to me. So I walked the kids up to the up the front of the church and sent them down the aisle towards the front. And I walked out the front doors. I just left. So I come back next week and the head of the Sunday school, Maggie and Reverend Bagby are there and we're, we're chatting and we're like, what happened? Is everything okay? And I told them, I said, look, I, I don't believe this. I, I don't believe the, the Jesus, the message, the creation, any of it. I just don't buy into it. And I didn't think it would be right for me to take communion in front of these children if I don't believe it. And they kind of looked at each other and then Reverend Bagby looked back at me and said, well, you're still going to come and teach, right? And he just, he didn't care what my personal beliefs were. He didn't care that I wasn't holding to the hard line of the Sunday school stuff. He encouraged the fact that I want, you know, we were supposed to be doing a lesson about Jesus-y stuff. And I would talk to the kids about Buddhism, or I'd talk to them about Islam or Judaism and incorporate that into my lessons. And he loved it. One of his favorite things to do to torment me is our youth group happened on the same night as I Wednesday night of their by the Bible studies that they hosted. And his favorite thing to do was wait to see if I was what t-shirt I was wearing, whether it was Megadeth or Rob Zombie or something. And then he would come into the... Uh, upper, uh, I can't remember what the hall is called, the hall off to the side of the church and grab me. And you can't say no to him. And he would at no, at a moment's notice say, Oh, I need you to read this, this part, uh, for the Bible study. Everyone, it, it'll be great. Don't worry. So he would sit there just howling to himself as I'm standing in front of these people in my black shorts my wallet chain, my hair is growing out, wearing some kind of horribly offensive metal or horror t-shirt. And I'm reading this stuff and they're all just smiling like, oh, that's just Bob. 
So I have a I I have a, a vested interest in when I when I see this kind of stuff used for such evil intentions, and Smith puts this across so well because I I know people or I knew people I should say I don't really associate with people like this anymore, but I knew people in high school that were into the darker sides of this stuff, the more extreme, the more fundamentalist stuff. Hell, we had a they allowed a. a Christian club at school, at our high school at Adam Scott, High Life, I think it was called. And we were, me and a friend were kicked out of that club more than once. I think it was me and Brendan Mertens used to rejoice, <coughs> pardon the, uh, I guess the irony there is thick, in going in there and just causing trouble, especially when they'd have guest speakers because they'd come in and just lie to these pe- lie to these kids. So we would always go in there and just tear it up until we were asked not to come back. So, or meeting people that would look you in the face at 17 and go, well, obviously Mahatma Gandhi's not in heaven, but Hitler is because he accepted Jesus into his heart. And you look at this stuff coming out of people's mouths and it's shocking. And you see the same stuff around the world today. This, this absolute silliness, but to red state, that's what we're talking about. Not my, not my religious confessions. So the film itself actually kind of operates as three different films. We have, we start with a very kind of John Hughes-esque slash 80s sex comedy vibe, and then it moves us into this very straight-ahead fundamentalist horror nightmare. And then the third sequence, we have this kind of a gun-heavy siege movie, almost very John Carpenter in scope. So we'll I'll break down, kind of talk about these three sections. So with the start here, with this kind of sex comedy vibe, it the whole thing kicks off because these kids, you know, teenage boys, desperate to get laid, so they find someone online in one of these chat rooms that says, oh yeah, I'll bang all your buddies, just bring them out to my trailer in the middle of nowhere, because that's safe. Situations like that, it's it's hard to make kids in that spot likable, especially nowadays, because we know that that kind of hyper male toxic masculinity just out to fuck is is shit it's wrong you it's obviously kids you know young boys have this horrible because your brain is just pumped full of fucking chemicals and you're just it's nature telling you that now is the time to breed you know these are your prime years to make more people and then you can die well obviously as a civilized society we have to temper that with things called you know thoughts and being intelligent and developing a set of morals so you don't just go on this kind of predatory attack mode. And despite what these kids want to do, Kevin Smith does manage to make them likable. They really in the fact that they feel real. These kids, they they shit talk each other. They're always giving each other crap. They feel very real in what they're doing. I'd say as opposed to a situation like something like Hostel, say as an example, where those three guys, their only goal is to go out and get laid, but they are just fucking putrid individuals. I I do not like the first Hostel film. I think the second one's much more successful. And it was so disappointing because Cabin Fever, Eli Roth's first movie, was so seminal for me as a as a young writer and filmmaker. But here, Smith gets it right. They're doing something greasy and shitty and they they pay way more than they deserve for it. But they're still you're still kind of invested. If the movie just kind of had of stayed 
a bit of a romp like that of these kind of hick boys in a small town and their their sad doom journey to get laid that still in and of itself could have been a fun Kevin Smith movie that's probably that's the most Kevin Smith-esque part of this whole film is the start now obviously they've been tricked Michael Parks and his family, they've been kind of laying digital traps to reel these people in. And that brings us to the second half of the movie. And that's kicked off by a 10 or 15 minute sermon that Michael Parks gives. And it is frightening and chilling because because he's playing this Phelps character, but he wisely decided not to just play it like Phelps. Because Michael Parks has said in interviews that while the language that Phelps uses and the Westboro Baptist Church uses is all fire and brimstone, and it's very dramatic language, very Old Testament, but it's fucking boring to listen to Fred Phelps speak. And he's right, because I remember hearing this quote by Michael Parks, and I like, that, that can't be right. This man is such a rebel rouse. Like, he's such a... He's such a vitriolic person. It can't be dull. So I went and watched an an interview just to kind of bring myself back up to speed with this guy. And he's right. It's so fucking boring. He speaks in the same monotone. Now, he doesn't blink. So that's creepy. He's got kind of that Heaven's Gate vibe. But it's just the same monotone voice. And hell will punish the homosexual agenda and all who praise it. It's so dull. But Michael Parks... He never goes over the top because it would be very easy to do a preacher as kind of the from on high, the demons will come and drag the sinners and the sodomites back down to the ashes of Gomorrah. Not the Guardians of the Galaxy Gomorrah, you know, the the Sodom Gomorrah, the Sodomy Gomorrah. So high five angels. Um, But he never goes there. He never takes it over the top, which would have been the easy route. He plays him so cool and collected and charismatic because this guy is a believer. He knows the power of his words and he knows the importance of being a powerful orator. Okay? It's the power of someone's voice and it doesn't matter what, almost doesn't matter what they're saying. It's how they say it. You know, Hitler was one of the most evil men in history, but he was an incredible public speaker. He knew how to talk to an audience and hook them and get them worked up and control them like good front, a uh, good front person in a band would do. You can manipulate an audience until you have them frothing for you. And that's what he does here, but it's all very calm and cool and collected. He doesn't need to scream or pound his hands or act like a douche like Mussolini or Trump does when they talk. Parks is so sinister and unflinching and the sermon is so calm and collected and this it erupts in this horrible violence like all the violence in the film it's very sudden jarring and then you move on from it. You, there's no wallowing in any of it. It's this slow horrific build and then you know he's just playing piano and singing his his hymns. And of course, when they murder this poor guy, the first one we see them murder, they take the gun out of the Bible. It's it's obvious, and it's almost obvious to the point of womp womp, but it's 
obvious in the fact that, well, of course, they keep their gun in their Bible, because that's exactly where these people keep their guns, is right next to their God. Now, that starts us into the third part, and we bring in the other main character of the film, and that's John Goodman. And he just crushes it in this film. He Obviously, everyone knows who John Goodman is. But this was kind of the start of this, a bit of a resurgence he's had as a dramatic actor. And he's gone on to do a lot of great roles since then, both comedy and drama. But playing this kind of burned out ATF agent with the, you know, the specter of Waco still hanging over the department. And that's another influence on this film I don't know if young people remember Waco, but that was the Seventh-day Adventists down in Texas led by David Koresh, and the ATF famously botched their their operation with these people and ended up setting their compound on fire and killing a bunch of the people that were inside. It's, it's a huge can of worms to unpack. I won't get into it here. You can go and do your own reading about it. But that specter of religious dealing with religious nuts is hanging heavily over him as they as they come and intervene here and what's interesting and the way that again these hard left turns that kevin smith takes throughout this whole film is it would have been easy for these guys to show up and be just these are the good guys they come riding in on their horses and they're going to save the day they're going to save the kids they're going to get out the 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 young people the children in the church that don't deserve this fate they're going to get them out and they're going to save the day but no in a wonderful twist that's almost it's it's sad how real it feels that he ends up making the good guys look almost as evil as the people they're there to take down. So what happens is, is that the local sheriff ends up shooting one of the kids as they're trying to run out and escape. One of the kids has been kidnapped in a very kind of night of the living death, night of living dead esque moment where the, the, the good guys end up killing the good guys out of ignorance and fear. And that's just like what happens here. And, it's this slow unraveling this how quickly one decision can make this whole situation spiral completely out of control and they're given orders to cover up their mistakes and shoot everybody kill everybody men women children the kidnapped victims everybody goes down to protect themselves and that's what's that's what happens it's just this horrid massacre on both sides where we're just turning in, like I said, into a John Carpenter-esque siege battle as they're, both sides are just getting shot to shit. They're taking down one, you know, one church member after another, and then the cops are getting shot. The, the oldest daughter of the, of the church members, she's pleading desperately to try to get the kids out, knowing that they don't deserve this. And boom, we just picking people off one after another. And it's a horrible thing to watch because again, it feels like everything else in the film real. We could, you would believe that a government agency would do this. You would believe that they would allow people to die to cover up their mistakes. And it's a sad indictment of, of, I wouldn't even say the world we live in now, because this is something that's always happened. You know, people in power, they botch stuff and they, they need, desperately need to cover it up, you know, or, or quit uh, an obvious criminal in a very public trial. Ah, topical. 
But that all leads to this incredible ending where the the cops have raided the compound. You think they've got everybody. And then you start to hear these monster trumpet blasts going off. And I remember the first time I saw it, I had this thought of, no way. No way they're doing this. Because these trumpet blasts, when you listen to this movie good and loud, they're deafening, you know, earth shakers, you know, like the great, you know, the, the bell has tolled. So the, the, the five pointers, I believe the church is called in this, the churchy peoples believe that the rapture has come and that they've been justified in their actions. So they rush out to confront the police. Few of them get shot down, but they don't care. And it's the only time Michael Parks really goes over the top is when he confronts John Goodman and starts screaming, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. And he's just, that's the only time he gets kind of that Southern preacher, you know, screaming and swearing and send me money for Jesus. Because even though he made humanity, he is terrible with money and constantly needs cash injections. And it builds to this. You have this moment of thinking, is shit, he's going to do this. Like he's going to, he's going to have the rapture show up. Obviously, they don't go that direction, and turns out it was some hippies that were trying to fuck with the church and installed these giant air horns that once you know it, go back and watch the movie again, you actually see in a quick shot these kids buying this air raid siren from a local fire station at the start. Without knowing it, it's just a detail that you don't think anything of, but I noticed it this time. I didn't notice it the first time I watched this movie, so that was a nice little touch to go back and see that little bit of extra layering in there because from a filmmaking perspective, this is a very mature film, probably his most mature film that Kevin Smith ever made. And he'd been on a progression with that. Like the Viewers Universe movies are all excellent movies, but they represent that chapter in his career. And they're done in a very specific style and tone. And then I don't want to say the next group of pictures are more... They're, fuck, I want to say this nicely, but they are more classically cinematic. You know, they're not just kind of his traditional, put the camera here, have people talk, put the camera over there, have people talk. Now they'll walk and talk a little bit, but those early films are a very kind of bare bones style. But then you go to things like Jersey Girl looks much more cinematic. Clerks 2 continued in that direction. Zack and Miri make porno definitely continued in that direction where it's, it's an improvement in skill that just kind of had to happen. You know, you make enough movies and you care about your craft, you're going to get better as a filmmaker. And all of those skills are put to bear here, uh, not just from a writing perspective, but how he works with his actors and how he handles the filmmaking side, how he handles the technical side. And from the, the rugged camera work to the look of it, to the fact that there's no score. There's a few scenes where you're getting, it's almost a tonal quality. Uh, the scene where they execute the guy on the cross at the end of the sermon, there's kind of this pulsing sound that happens that is more sound design as score. And it's something I love when filmmakers do that. I've done it myself in my own shorts. I prefer that in certain situations to a more standard score. I don't think that would have fit this movie. 99% of the music in the movie is in the movie. It's non-diegetic. It's stuff that's happening in the movie, whether it's a radio being played or Michael Parks himself at the piano playing or singing hymns. 
And it, it works so well because it brings it back to the realness, this grounded feeling that this film creates for you where you feel trapped with these people because you you feel trapped like the characters are and when you're dealing with kind of nutcases like this and yes i will say nutcases if you're this deep into any ideology you're a nut you just are it's there there's no ifs ands or or buts about it it's just nuts I I wish there was a nicer way to put it. You know, obviously these people and anyone in situations like this, you've been duped, you've been tricked, you fooled yourself intentionally to the point where you believe that everyone else is fooled instead of you. But that's just the situation. These people are nuts. And the film is so dry and so angry and edgy. It feels pointy. You know, any angle that you try and grab this movie at, you feel like you're going to prick your fingers on it, you know, or get a paper cut like on the edge of one of their anger signs. Like just the, the shit on these people putting the fuck, it makes me mad. They put on their signs and there's a scene where they recreate one of the, the funeral protests, which is the same as the Westboro Baptist Church does in real life. And it's basically, it's one for one. The stuff on the signs is different, but... Beyond that, it's it's exactly the same thing, and it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And the film captures this reality so well. And I think it hits just as hard now. I think it actually hits harder now because the world, in terms of its this religious right uprising we've had in the States where you've seen you know they're going they're going after Wade versus Roe they're going after LGBTQ rights as hard as they possibly can because they know that this is their window this is the time for them to do this i think it's south dakota's trying right now to strip basically every uh, human rights protection and law that's been put in place for LGBTQ people and that's disgusting uh, going after abortion rights cuz it all comes down again it's control you're just trying to control the other, whether it's an any identified group. And man, the Christians do love going after women and attacking their rights for anything to just try and exert as much control and dominance there as they can because a 2,000-year-old book written by lunatics makes them feel justified in it. And the book review part of this episode, we'll talk a little bit about more, a little bit more about those kind of people. But... An absolutely excellent film. The The story around making it is almost as fun as the movie itself. I say fun as in that it's an enjoyable experience, even though the odd experience is, is an intense one. They they were famously picketed by Westboro throughout the, the roadshow release of the film. They staged some wonderful counter-protests in the cities. Uh, Kevin Smith would tweet out to kids, hey, we're getting protested, so let's have our own counter-protest, but all peace and love. So these kids would come out with their own signs, and it's just it's just wonderful that there are these people out there that will stand in front of this kind of hate. And people do this all the time. There are groups that go around just to get in the way of people like the Westboro Baptist Church that will do human chains in front of funerals or events that these people are protesting so that those inside don't have to deal with it. And that is wonderful to see. There is still such hope 
out there in the world, even though after today, Wednesday, I guess, is Friday when you guys are listening to this, I'm, I'm sure the world does seem like quite a gloomy place and a scary place because it is right now. It is a, uh, it is a divisive time. You know, I've heard a lot of people say to me and I've heard conversation like, what happened to center? What happened to the center? And like, yeah, well, the center is lovely, but unfortunately there are points in history where lines are drawn when you come up against whether it's a political ideology or a theocratic ideology that has to be fought and those lines spill into the streets and you do have to decide what side you're standing on and it's a shame that those lines have to be drawn and in and once that battle is fought and won for good or ill those lines do tend to relax and people do come back to center and i get why people are tired you know they're tired of it, especially the last 3 years even though technically we've been dealing with this shit since 2001 you know, there's people that are 18 years old now that don't know what it's like to live in a world where the West isn't at war with somebody. It's it's crazy. So I get why so many people are tired and sitting out and not getting involved in, in whatever way they feel. And if you feel that, you know, sharing a meme that puts a Trudeau comment out of context, that that's how that's just desperately what you believe because you've researched it, because you've looked into it, and you've decided that this is what you think, then you know what? By all means, share that shit. I don't have to look at it. I don't have to follow it. But if you've looked into it, if you've actually taken the time, if you didn't just see a meme or, well, you know what? Just saw a meme because that's kind of where we're at now. And you saw a meme and went, oh, that fits what I'm feeling right now. I'm going to share that vitriolic shit. And that gets spread because there are people that just won't look. There are people that won't dig. People like the characters in Red State, okay? They don't look beyond what their their fear is telling them, what their immediate gut instinct is telling them, and their gut instinct is usually just as to forge a fear that's been stoked by their scripture and their doctrine. You know, this... I know this is getting heavy, and I caught myself here, and I don't mean to go on some kind of diatribe, but shit like this, it just pisses me off. And it it pisses me off for two reasons. One, it's fucking evil. But also, and and I'll just say this, we're all guilty of spewing some kind of nonsense like this, shit that's completely out of touch, okay? Everybody's guilty of this. I'm guilty of it, okay? When people get angry about, say, something like Me Too. You know, well, it's, oh, I've never done that. Oh, I've never, I would never do things like that. Yes, you might not have sexually assaulted anybody, but every guy that I knew at some point in their life has even something as inappropriate as snapping bra straps or making inappropriate comments or jeering or catcalling or leering or something like that. Every guy I know has participated in some form or another of that. Now, I'm not excusing the behavior. It was acceptable and encouraged behavior at the time. But times have changed. We have to move on. So this shit should get us mad. And I know why people dig down and say, it can't be me, it can't be me, because no one wants to admit that they've participated in this, to whether it's what we would consider 
obviously not as a brutal form of it. You know, you're not, you might not have physically laid hands on somebody in an assaulting way, but we still, you know, I would say just in this case, as men, we benefited from this. Just perfect example. Say you never snapped a bra strap, you never did anything, you never, you, you never got pushy in bed, any of those things, okay? How many assemblies did we sit in in high school and listen to the teachers get up there and deliver the dress code discussion, and 99% of it didn't have to do with us? There. Easy. That's, that's sexism in action, guys. That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And I know you might be saying, hey, Bob, you're making a bit of a leap from religious fundamentalism to dress code problems. No, it's control. And that's what it's after. It's about controlling the other person's behavior to suit your needs. And that's what Red State does so well. It deals with it from the religious aspect, from the government aspect, and creates one hell of a knockout punch. There's some issues. There's some comedy that's out of place, especially in the debriefing scene at the end. There's comedy there that kind of sucks a bit of the wind out of the sails, but the end recovers with a perfect out. But check it out. Kevin Smith's Red State, it's, I'm sure it's streaming somewhere, uh, or just go out and buy the DVD. Be an adult. Put your, get your fucking credit card out. You know, if you can buy however many goddamn apps for, for your phone or for anything else or your jangle points or whatever the games are that people play. I don't know. I'm feeling like an angry old man right now. Oh, just before we wrap this up and get on to Star Trek, I talked about the Rapture ending. Now, originally, if the budget had have allowed... Kevin Smith has said that he did intend to go that way. What was going to happen was, I'm going to try and explain this as best I can, but I'm not quoting it properly. Just go and YouTube Red State ending. Kevin Smith will tell you himself. But the siren would have gone off. The big, the horns would have sounded, but it would have been like drop to their knees loud. And John Goodman's character, the camera would have followed him as he looked up into the sky as the seven seals were opened and the sky turned blood red and across the sky charged the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then he would have looked down to see a gigantic sword pierce the chest of Michael Park's character, pinning him to the ground. And then he would have looked up, followed the flaming sword up to this huge angelic figure standing above him. And the angel would have leaned down to John Goodman, put his finger up to his lips and said, shh, credits. Boom. That would have been an absolutely monster ending. I get why they couldn't do it. That ending alone probably would have cost as much as the rest of the film combined. But man, excellent movie. Nonetheless, check it out. So for just change the pace and get a little more upbeat there because I know I, uh, I soapbox there for a minute, but fuck it. It's my show. I can soapbox all I want. I buy soap. I'm an adult. I can get a box from somewhere. I don't know. Does soap still come in boxes like that? Anyway, that's a total fucking stupid non sequitur. DS9, episode six, aired uh, February 7th, 1993, and it is called Q-less. Huh? Get it? So this is another, as happens a few times in the first season or two of DS9, this is what I call the uh, throw a bone episode, or a throw a bone style episode, where it's just a friendly reminder that this is in fact Star Trek. 
Look, gang, here's characters you remember from Star Trek Next Generation. Here's some scenarios you're familiar with, but mainly, here's some characters that you know from TNG. Mainly, Q and Picard's one-time squeeze, Vash. So, this episode is, it's again, it's one of those meat and potatoes kind of episodes, where it's, as I said before, it is an episode that could have... You know, we've talked about episodes that could happen on any kind of trek, and this is, thus far, this is an episode that could have happened anywhere. It didn't need to be on Deep Space Nine. So, let's see what the internet has to say about this. So, according to IMDb, the synopsis of Q-less is as follows. Q, the Enterprise D's consistent, omnipotent annoyance, nice, comes to harass the DS9 crew when his traveling companion, Vash, refuses to follow with Q any longer, or travel with Q any longer. So that's what this comes down to. The last time we saw Vash, she had uh, had her little uh, roll in the hay with Picard, and then scooted off with Q to explore the the galaxy. So it's it's a cute, fun little episode. It is. It's, it's always fun to see Q. The, the big problem here is that Q just doesn't really fit in to DS9. DS9 is so much more gritty and grounded of a Star Trek, even after just six episodes, that to introduce this kind of trickster, silly character like Q, it just it doesn't fit. There's a reason why they never brought Q back. And it's the fact that the episode is is just it's a little too silly. And when when they drop Q onto Voyager, that worked way better because Voyager is much more in line with that next generation vibe. And Q and Janeway play off each other better. You know, here, Cisco is a shitty foil for Q because he would just not put up with any of his shit. Cisco is an aggressive commander. So unlike Picard, who can never be baited, he can never be drawn into it. You know, Q is the per- was the perfect foil for Captain Picard because Q's kind of childish persistence and unyielding arrogance and love of himself runs at a total antithesis to who Picard is as a character. Whereas someone like Cisco, who is not arrogant or anything like that, but he has no compunction with bullshit. He has no qualms about going and fighting instead of trying to spend endless amount of hours trying to use diplomacy. And they're just two very different captains. It's two different commanding styles. But Q is always taunting Picard, never got the reaction he wanted. And that was the joke. That was the fun of it. Here, Q fucks with Cisco, so Cisco just punches him in the face, which is wonderful. But the problem is, that's it. There's nowhere else for their dynamic to go. So we get this kind of back and forth with Q and Vash, and she's done with his bullshit, and he's, you know, completely trying to gaslight her and fuck with her, and, you know, but offering her things, and this idea of getting to see the gal- the universe with a character like Q is that that's a very tempting idea. I, I get why she would have been tempted into that, but there would come a time that you just can't put up with his shit anymore. So it's that whole part of it is fun. And as the crew, they're racing to figure out what's going on. And it turns out she brought an egg 
creature back from the uh, back from the gamma quadrant and they end up at the very last minute save the station release it which again is another kind of fun callback to the space dwelling life forms i'd say a la like encounters at far point the first next generation episode so it's a it's a good episode i guess the big on one of the ongoing things we get to see here is you really get to see o'brien's irritation with Julian on display here. The opening scene where Bashir is trying to seduce this woman with the tales of his genius and his brilliance. You see O'Brien in the background just like, oh, give me a fucking break, you goof. So that part is fun. That stuff is enjoyable. And of course, like Bashir is still such an undefined character at this point where he's kind of bouncing between this childlike idiocy almost but with these i guess that kind of childish arrogance he would kind of fancy himself a bit of a casanova so he's always trying to hit on anything that moves and in a total violation of any kind of doctor patient ethics immediately hits on vash it's it's silly you know her and cork bounce off each other well because they're both kind of that in it for the money stuff so there's some fun stuff with her and cork but other than that it's it's a cute episode it's not a bad episode but it's kind of indicative of why some next generation fans weren't stoked on ds9 because they'd see an episode like this and just go well i could just be watching a better version of this story on next generation you keep talking about picard you keep talking about the enterprise I'm just going to switch channels and just go watch Picard. So I'm glad they stopped doing this. You know, obviously in season four, we get Worf, but that's different. He melds so well with the show. But good. It's it's a fine episode, I guess. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just it's not the Deep Space Nine that the show would become in any way, shape or form. So now back to the heavy shit with uh, this week's book review. So this week, I, I read, well, I didn't read it this week. I read it a couple weeks ago. But again, I'm so ahead of the book stuff. I'm trying to look at my list and go, what fits here? What works? So I recently read Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale from 1985. Now, I have a conflicted history with Margaret Atwood. I know she's a Canadian treasure. But I was first introduced to Margaret Atwood at an absolutely terrible time, and that was as a 17-year-old boy. You're just, you're primed for failure with someone like that, with a 17-year-old boy, even a really sharp 17-year-old boy. And uh, we were given uh, Cat's Eye to read. I'll never forget it. My English teacher, Miss Sargent, she was handing out the books and she could tell that she was going to have a hard sell with the guys in the class on this. But she looked at me and said, Bob, you'll love it. There's a scene where she rips all the skin off of her feet (laughs) because she knew I was a horror guy. But I read Cat's Eye and I, I hated it. But I had a very young man's reaction to the whole thing. And it's, you know, I talked about earlier about seeing things then and taking them out of context, but they immediately suit your needs because your opinions are so poorly formed. So I took a very negative stance on Margaret Atwood for a lot of years, and it was a very ignorant approach. I'll admit it. It'd be a whole lot better if we could all just be honest with ourselves and the shitty opinions we've held in the past where I was in that camp of, oh, fuck Margaret Atwood, she's just a man-hater, she's this, she's that, all because I'd read one book when I was 17 and drawn an opinion. 
What's that? That's just as childish as saying, well, I don't like cashews. Well, you're 35. Why don't you like cashews? Well, I tried them when I was four and I didn't like them. So now I've spent all these years saying that they're gross and I don't like it. Well, why don't you be an adult and try it again? So I've been badgered constantly. My sister loves Margaret Atwood. She's My sister is, for those 14 months part fans, no, she's much more literary in that style of what she reads compared to me where I'm much more of a genre guy. My friend Tuesday's been bugging me about it. it bugging, I say, not in like a naggy way, but in a nice way, like you would probably like this if you just shut your mouth long enough to read it. So it was recommended that I start with something like the Handmaid's Tale, because it does have this kind of dystopian sci-fi, which I really like, so I read it. And I really liked it. It is a heavy read. I still stand by my some of my earlier opinions about Margaret Atwood. I would say she overwrites. She has a tendency to carry on longer than I would necessarily do or enjoy. You know, sentences that go on, you know, it was it was dark like night, like the bottom of the ocean, like the blackness of paper, like the end of a tailpipe, like the thoughts of a dead child on fire. Like, you know what I mean? Like this run of descriptions and similar everything. That stuff gets tiring, but this when she does, stops focusing on writing to write and writes the story that she's writing about, the book is quite wonderful. There were two separate occasions reading it where I actually was sick to my stomach based on the, the content, the, cause if anybody who doesn't know, if you haven't seen the TV show ads or whatever, Handmaid's Tale is a dystopian future where the American government, or at least part of it has been overthrown and the country of Gilead has been formed. And it is a hardline patriarchal religious theocracy where women are put into these incredibly subservient roles and broken down into wives of rich people who are just there to be seen, servant class, and the handmaid class who are basically breeding stock. That's their only purpose. And they are kept as basically poorly treated animals. And there's a scene where they're walking. The two of them are walking to the store that they're allowed to walk back and forth in the compound to every day. And they're wearing, as we've seen in the commercials for the show, these huge hoods over their heads, a bonnet, I guess. And they're walking and describing the fact that they cannot look around. They only know the world based off of the view that they see on their hood, because if they out of their bonnet, because if they were seen to be looking up and around other than in designated areas where that is allowed, they would be punished for that. And just that thought where you have so controlled a human being where they can't even physically look around themselves and their outsides, so you've isolated their worldview down to this little tunnel. And that to me was so disgusting. It's brilliant, but it's disgusting. And then in the flashback scenes, because it's like, how does the world get here? How do you possibly take a country like the United States and so completely destroy it in a period of only maybe 10 years or so from a normal world to this insanity, I think is maybe the time frame she deals with. She's a little fluid about it. But when they're deep, because they talk about in the flashback scenes, this, uh, the president was assassinated, the Congress, they were all shot. 
So this kind of military dictatorship stepped in and then it's kind of one small step at a time that they took of you start arresting people, you start putting emergency powers into place and just to make people feel safe and safe and safe. And then this one day, all of a sudden, she goes to try to take money out of her bank account and it's frozen. And then she gets to work and all the women have been fired. And this has happened. They rolled it out in one day all across the country. Any woman they've frozen their bank accounts, they've fired from their jobs because they can no longer work or control their own money. Boom. Overnight, done. That to me is so shocking and frightening. And it's not just what they did, which is hideous. And the fact that this ha- is a, sadly a, a norm in so many parts of the world and has been for a very long time. But the fact that this could happen, and it's all done through little small steps, and it's designed to, so you stop asking questions. So you're so tired and afraid that you just start tuning out and tuning out and tuning out until the really big fuckery happens. And just look at the last three years in the United States and tell me that something like The Handmaid's Tale doesn't have a root in reality. It's a book written in 1985. And I haven't watched the show. I've heard the first season is quite good because it's just the the book. And then they take some liberties with it. I also have not read The Testaments, the sequel. But uh, Jack and Tuesday both spoke very highly of it. Said it's better than the first book. It's not a stretch to think that this could happen in, in a Western country. In the so-called, quote-unquote, first world that these kind of things could happen. It was only, you know, we, we've really only taken baby steps out of our own cultural dark age in the Western world. And the last three years have in every country, there just seems to be this hammering at these frail pillars of actual civilized human behavior and just trying to chop all this stuff back and just revert us right back to where we were. And that's horrifying. And I, I recommend Handmaid's Tale is not a fun read. It wasn't, uh, no real dystopian stuff is fun, but you can still have an enjoyable time, even though it's, it's upsetting subject matter and it, it's upsetting subject matter, but I would definitely recommend it. If you are, if you are a guy who had a, a shitty experience with Margaret Atwood as a young person, or you're a guy that just never read Margaret Atwood because you think, oh, it's books for women, and she just see that. Just, just shut up. You just think about the things. If we all just thought about the stuff coming out of our mouths a little more often, we'd probably be in a much better place. But that's just an insane thing to think about. As I sit here and you know spout my shit on a microphone, but whatever. At least I've looked into it, and you know it's about inclusion and being nice to each other. It's a shocker. Check it out, Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Uh, read Testaments. Let me know. Let me know if it's... I love dystopian sci-fi, so this is a great addition to that. Let me know if it works for you. If it doesn't change your opinion about Margaret Atwood, if it did, it'd be nice to have that chat. So, to wrap us all up here, let's uh, keep the grim train rolling with some recommendations. So, my two uh, movie recommendations for the week is The Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. Um excellent uh, post-apocalyptic movie. Again, it's about how people want to get a hold of religion to use it to control people. Denzel Washington is awesome in it. It's kind of this modern, you know, kind of blind samurai guy. Excellent movie. And The Witchfinder General 
with Vincent Price, probably the nastiest movie that Vincent Price was ever in. And he's playing, as it sounds, this Witchfinder General. It's part of the Inquisition. It's a period piece. Very, very, very bloody film. Very nasty, mean-spirited film, but a really good film. It's also, you might find it under the title The Conqueror Worm. Uh, that's the copy I have. It's the exact same movie, but it's just two different titles was released in. And for book recommendation, I recommend Timothy Finley's To Keep Canadian, Not Wanted on the Voyage. And that is a dark take on the story of Noah's Ark because the god in Red State is a god of fear and nastiness. He's not a god that loves you unless you fear him. And the Old Testament god was definitely that. He was a dick. And just like the story of Noah's Ark, he drowned everybody because he didn't think they were believing in him enough. But Timothy Finley takes it way farther. And God is this pathetic mutant in this traveling circus. And Noah is a drunk and is violent piece of shit and it explains why we don't have unicorns and demons i won't spoil anything because it is just so fucked up but definitely check it out timothy finley's not wanted on the voyage Whew, that was a heavy one i was even going to try and make this one a little shorter because i know i went way long last week with the double bill but shit i guess i don't have to do a double bill to go way long i just have to get myself all worked up about religious nonsense so next week For episode seven, it's the return of 14 months apart. Yay! Fanfare, total excitement. So next Friday is Valentine's Day, the shittiest holiday of the year. I don't say that just because I'm single, even when I was not single. I've always hated Valentine's Day. It's it's a cheap holiday. If you're with somebody, your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, miscellaneous, whatever, and they like it, maybe just swallow your pride and take them out to dinner. Like, just fucking relax about it. But... It is it is completely foolish. Take about another day of the week. It's fine, you know. And it, ladies, get your guy flowers. We like flowers. Sometimes that's nice too. But so for this, I thought it would be fun because obviously it's fourteen months apart. So it's gonna be me and Jack. We thought we would bring Marty, Mr. Martin Kurzlake, onto the show, my brother-in-law Jack's husband, and talk about some movies on this day of love that we both love, or so that one of us loves, but the other one hates. So we are going to be talking about Labyrinth and the Princess Bride. Now, we've talked about on the show before how me and Jack are not in the Princess Bride camp at all. We are not fans of the film. I get it, but we just don't want it. Whereas Marty is with the other 99% of the Earth's population and fucking adores the Princess Bride, but does not like Labyrinth, which to me and Jack, that makes absolutely no sense but in the exact same way that Marty cannot fathom how we do not love Princess Bride. So we are going to sit down as a team, and we are going to have a rousing discussion about why we love these movies, why we don't love these movies, and seeing if we can get a little bit more on the same playing field with each other. So that should be fun. So come tune back in next week for that, January 14th, or February 14th. January? What fucking day is it? February 14th. Lousy smart weather. But... Uh, until then, you can find me on Facebook at the Steal My Name Podcast. Uh, you can find me on uh, SoundCloud at Steal My... Sorry. Facebook is Steal My Name Cast. Pah. Facebook uh, is, yeah, Steal My Name Cast. SoundCloud is Steal My Name Podcast. I don't even know where you can find me. Just go into the street and scream my name, and eventually someone will say, Hey, Bob, there's somebody in Millbrook that's really mad, and you should go talk to them. They've been in the street for three days. They've defecated themselves. They've eaten their shoes, and now they're bored. 
So that's where you can find me. iTunes, I'm still having trouble with. So you can search 14 Months Apart there or the Steal My Name podcast. But just search 14 Months Apart. Steal My Name podcast is there. (sighs) Okay. Slow it down here. Thank you guys once again for joining me. I hope you had a good time with this, even though the content was a little bit heavier. But hey, sometimes you got to drop those, uh, those heavy bombs on it. So one more thank you. And until next time, remember to steal your own name because this one is already taken. <laughs>